Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. It's great to be back with you. I loved having Jeremy's uh, preach last week, and uh, one of the really powerful things I love about what he said uh, that he didn't have time to get into, it, it has to do with how God uses language of the culture that he's speaking to. Now, Jeremy actually did say that in his exposition of, of the different Gospels, but, but what he didn't say is something I really, really love. It's something I see in John, how he uses words from the secular and the other religious world around him that are actually often laced in the culture with very non-Christian meanings. And he takes those and he reframes them biblically, centering them on Jesus. Paul does the same thing. And uh, so I want you to understand something, that when Jeremy or I talk about various social issues, whether it's justice or other things like that going on in our culture today, hot topic things, we recognize that a lot of the words that our culture is using are laced with things that are clearly non-Christian in parts of the culture, but we are working to do the same thing the Bible teaches us to do that John, Paul, and other biblical writers all do to take cultural concepts that people are passionate about and already have some measure of understanding. In almost all of those instances, there's at least a small thread somewhere in there that actually relates to a biblical framework as well and to reframe and redirect those concepts biblically. Uh, such a powerful biblical truth that was illustrated in Jeremy's message last week. And we're in the New Testament. The story of Jesus is unfolding. Most of us know the story well, especially the Christmas story of Jesus' birth and the iconic images we have of Mary and Joseph and the donkeys in Bethlehem. And I'd like to kind of help us, maybe if we could, shake off the familiarity of those stories and try to get at some really core points that we need to know that frame this one big story we're looking at. So Mary and Joseph are raised in a very small town, a traditional Jewish culture, including kind of a fiddler on the roof type of matchmaking marriage kind of culture. So Mary's somewhere between 10 and 13 years old. Her parents negotiate a marriage contract, and it's official with witnesses. And, and you got to understand, this is much more than just engagement would be in our culture. They are pledged to be married. It's kind of a done deal. Luke One says this, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary tells Joseph that she's with child by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't believe her. I mean, who would, right? He takes steps quietly to begin to divorce her and it takes a vision from an angel and a dream to convince him. But both of them know that this is going to go well. Their reputation is going to be, you know, bad in the eyes of other people and their family, and and it's not going to be good for Joseph or Mary. And I mean, it poses an interesting question for us: Why would God choose to come in a way that, from the very beginning, looks like scandal? I mean, curious question, right? Further, it always astounds me how big God's love is and how big His entrances are in so many places, from creation of the earth to the huge rescue seen as a nation while walking through the sea, to stopping the movement of the sun for a time, to the Elijah and pouring down fire on a drenched altar. And God does so many things big. When it comes to the moment when everything is ready for Him, 
self to come into this earth as the promised Messiah. He doesn't have the seas roar or the trees clap their hands or the mountains fall down and bow before Him. Instead, we see Jesus come to earth in relative quietness and darkness. I mean, Mary gives birth. The angel told her to name Him Jesus and because the name means everything. It means Jesus saves. God saves. It is Jesus, the one who is coming to solve the problem of Israel and humanity's sin. And sin in the Bible refers to our inability to reflect God's image. It, it's a failure to love God and to love each other perfectly. And with that kind of a definition of sin, I don't think any of us would disagree with that diagnosis. We'd think it was pretty accurate. I mean, we can minimize and we can compare ourselves to others, but what we all know is that we all continually fail to measure up to the perfection of how we even want to love, much less how God wants us to love. Even our best attempts are hopeless. See, that's why Jesus came, to save us, change our hearts, be our rescuer, not just to give us a new or better morality. It's a solution of God becoming human, a solution of outside of ourselves, Jesus came to be and to do as the kind of human that you and I are incapable of ever being or doing. At the same time, it's a solution totally inside of the human problem. Because Jesus is actually fully human himself, it's the divine and the human coming together to save and to rescue which leads us to Jesus' second name. It's Emmanuel. And we all know that that means God with us. I mean, God with us means God is not okay leaving humanity alone in our failure and our sin. God is not okay leaving me alone. He is not okay with not making rescue possible for both you and for me. So as we move through the Christmas story, we see all the hardship, Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt and coming back to live in a hometown where everyone is gossiping about them, learning to trust that God is not the author of suffering. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us in the midst of the hardships that do happen in this life. So as we come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we meet John the Baptist, and that's where I want to camp the rest of our time together today. Jesus knew who he was to some extent, but we actually see Jesus very clearly in his identity in his first interaction with John the Baptist that's recorded in the Bible. It's John is Jesus' cousin, that, and, and we see Jesus' identity more fully. John was sent by God to prepare everyone for Jesus' coming. So John captured the entire attention of the nation of Israel in part because he was a little bit odd. Because, but God used them to show them what they needed to do to receive Jesus. And maybe you've asked that in the past. Maybe you still ask that in some ways today. How exactly do I receive Jesus or all that Jesus has for me? How do I, is there a certain level of morality that I obtain? Is, if so, how much? Or, or maybe you've thought, I would like to, I'd like to know God, but, but I don't know why I have to change. And we kind of like this phrase, doesn't he just accept me for who I am? We have all these questions. And John the Baptist actually points us to the answer to all of those questions. Matthew 3, 
Let's get into it. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Yum. What I admire about John is everything about him is bold. He wasn't self-absorbed. I mean, we tend to worry about what we wear to the gym at 5 a.m. in the morning with people we don't even know. But John wore camel's hair. He lived in the desert. He ate crunchy grasshoppers smothered in honey. So uh, living in Oregon for 11 years, it seemed everyone out there when we lived there wanted to be hipster. And what I mean by hipster is this desire to stay current with all the current latest trends and the news and Honestly, I could never be hipster if I wanted to. I mean, could you imagine me with skinny jeans and a man bun? That just doesn't work for me, right? It's a scary thought. Now, Daniel, who led the servant worship earlier today, he, he, he can do it, but me, no, right? Yet I do have something in common with hipsters. I do have a really strong desire to stay relevant. And what I admire about John so much is that he, he didn't really care about that so much. Jeremy and I and, and Wendy were talking about it uh, recently, and, and Jeremy summed the, the question up this way. He said, how can we be relevant and not water down orthodoxy without being offensive? I, I think that at the very least that's a tall task and maybe, maybe an impossible task, but I think it's a good thing to think about. John was bold. He said, this is right and this is wrong. He didn't always try to soften the blow. This is what is so difficult, I think, to navigate in our current culture today with its extreme PC analysis of every word you use, combined with much of our culture being so absolutely incapable to navigate conflict and differences graciously. We, and I, and I mean me included in that, need to get better at communication. But it, but it is really interesting that John's boldness and his focus on the essentials of the faith we're sometimes just not even worrying about that so much, just being clear. The way John lived, his kind of grisly Adams kind of vibe, it was intriguing, reminding them of, uh, of a previous prophet, Elijah, in the Old Testament, who uh, prophets Malachi and Isaiah said right before the Messiah would come, one who was like Elijah would precede him. So let's jump back into Matthew. Matthew says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And they wondered, could this be Elijah reincarnate? I mean, he looks a little bit like him and preaches like him. I mean, and what was John the Baptist's message? It was real simple. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Basically, that's the whole sermon. Man, I wish my sermons could be that simple, and maybe you wish they could be that short. I don't know. But I imagine in response to John's simple message, many people said, well, I got that. I got it, John. Repent. Okay, what's the next point? And John would come back and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So trying to understand this message of repentance today may lead our minds to seeing a picture of someone standing on a street, street corner with a sandwich board that says, turn or burn, repent, the end of the world, the world is near, or something of that nature. I mean, biblical repentance, though it's broader than what we would think about in that corner sign. The Greek meaning of the word repent is to turn. 
So the biblical narrative helps us see that John's call to repent means we have to fully change our direction. A full reorientation of our values, our habits, our loves, our thinking, and our behavior so that we become more fully rooted in knowing and being like God's nature in whose image we are created. Repentance can mean turning away from that which is sinful, but the broader understanding is that we turn to something, we turn to God and more fully dedicate ourselves to follow all of God's will and to let God's will direct our lives. It's not just turning away from sin, but to live out a desire and a love for Jesus that is so sincere and so committed that other people see Jesus in us and are attracted to Him. Matthew 3 goes on, it says, But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So this is not one of those relevant, you know, win friends and influence people PC moments, right? John was calling the religious leaders who were presenting themselves as godly but were inwardly dead. They were acting like gatekeepers saying, we know the way, we're the chosen ones. Anyone who doesn't perform like we say is cursed. These Jews were misrepresenting God. And John goes on telling them not only to repent, but he then says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We'll come back to that in a moment. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Kind of ouch, right? John shows us that there are two ways to be separated from God. The first way is disobeying the laws of God. And the second way is thinking you can make yourself good enough to earn God's approval. John says true repentance means that we don't hide behind religion. We don't tell ourselves, I was raised a Christian, so that makes me a Christian. I gave, I, I, I give this much. I prayed this much. I, 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 so I'm good with God. John is talking about something that's really at the very root of our being. And, and it's something that religion keeps us from getting at in our lives. And it's this. Do we love ourself more than we love God? It's really that simple. An analogy often used to describe this root problem is, is an analogy of a married man who has a mistress. During the week, he's with his family doing all the things a good husband and dad would do. But on Friday through Saturday afternoon, he's with his mistress and his wife knows it. And yet, for some reason, this guy's dense and he's confused that his wife is upset with him. And he tries to say, well, I'm doing all the good things that you want me to do on these other days. And yet, he doesn't get the devastation of what it's like to love someone who is not fully committed to you who has a divided heart, who turns away to another lover. See, being religious and doing the right behaviors doesn't deal with the core issues of our hearts. I mean, who do we, who do we put first? What do we really love most? Money, pleasure, power, moral superiority, our politics rather than God? Even worse, religion keeps you from throwing yourself on God's grace, the only hope that we have of ever having the root of our heart ever changed. 
See, Jesus tells a story in Luke 18 about two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a really religious guy. He was a Pharisee who did all the right things religiously. This man stood up and prayed, and as he does, he recounts all the things that he's done that must have pleased God. God, I'm grateful that I'm a tither. I'm law-abiding, and I'm true to my wife. And he goes on and on and on. And I mean, no one would actually look at this guy in real life as you, if you knew him and think there was a problem that needed correcting. He was a good guy, did a lot of good things. The other, a tax collector, and in our day, the closest equivalent might be someone who's a combination of a drug pusher, pimp, who, who steals from others and abuses others. And uh, there's no shred of righteousness in this guy. And when compared to the Pharisee, you, uh, he's, the, the Pharisee's obviously the better person. I mean, he's the one you'd want to have as a neighbor. He's the one you'd want to walk down the street next to. And this tax collector, pusher, and pimp, we'd want to be on the opposite side of the street or be in a different town. We would want to avoid him. And yet in this parable, it's this pimp pusher who is so overwhelmed with his sinfulness that he won't even come to the front of the church. He stands as far back as he can, embarrassed to even be there, beating his chest with intense regret and repentance, saying, God, Be merciful to me, the worst of all sinners. Jesus is helping us in this parable see what happens on the inside when people trust in themselves for their own goodness versus trusting in God for right standing with God. So Jesus said this repentant pusher pimp went home justified because he hoped in God's grace, not his own works. But this self-righteous guy at the front went home with only his filthy works, imperfect, corrupt works that condemn him of his own sin. See, John challenges the religious thinking as well as Jesus by telling them, do not say we have Abraham. See, religion often makes us retreat into something other than God's grace. What is that for you? What do you struggle with in that area? What do you retreat into? For you, is it, I'm a good person and I'll be okay? Is it your church attendance? Is it your reputation? Is it your leadership or ministry experience, your politics, your good parenting, or how smart you are? Or is it that you donate to some worthy causes? See, John's message and Jesus' message is there is no hope apart from repentance and God's grace coming into your life to help bring that deep heart change that we can't bring on our own. I mean, John says true repentance bears fruit. It's known by its fruit. See, when we choose to repent and we turn to God, the result should over time be visible change. If our lives don't change, something's not right. I mean, does the fruit of the Spirit bring more peace in you and in your relationships? Or, and in fact, is that even possible in our current world? And the answer here is yes, it is. The natural result of truly turning toward and following God is an increase in patience and love and kindness and goodness and self-control and even joy in the face of difficult things. See, there are many people who get baptized but never repent. If your life did not radically change over time when you got baptized, then it is likely that you did not do a baptism of repentance. You just got wet in front of a bunch of people. 
Now, baptism was not completely uncommon in Jesus' day either, so let's understand this. Jews used it as part of the conversion process for Gentiles to become Jews. And that conversion process usually involved three things. It meant you get circumcised, you memorized a bunch of passages from the Old Testament law, and you got baptized showing you were washing away your previous life. So at Quest, when we do baptism, we welcome anyone who's ready for baptism, even on the day that we do baptisms. If you didn't go through the class, we welcome you to be baptized that day. But can, can you imagine if we also offered spontaneous circumcision? If that day I stood up here with a bottle of Vicodin and bandages and a sharp knife because we loved you, and, and, and I was going to say, but maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway, a dull knife if we don't like you. <laughs> I should have left that one off, right? Jews also used baptism as a ritual cleansing, right? Was in addition, in purification ceremonies before they offered sacrifices. So in verse 11, John shows you his baptism was different. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to to carry. Uh, That in itself is an amazing thing which we could spend time on, but we don't have time. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He was talking to the Jews and saying to them that they needed to be converted too. That was revolutionary as far as a claim. John also says his baptism is symbolic of someone greater coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So let's look a little more at this and then we'll tie it together. John baptizes in the Jordan River on the edge of the wilderness. The Jordan River was a place, remember, where Israel under Joshua crossed over into the promised land after wandering in the desert for 40 years because of their sin. So here's what John is saying. John is saying the real baptism is when you leave the wilderness of your sin for the promised land of faith and obedience. And the only way you can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why you need a Messiah who can give you the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit, not just a cleansing with water. Jesus entered the scene in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And, and John recognizes him. They're cousins after all. So he tries to stop him saying, this is a baptism of repentance, Jesus. And think about it. What did Jesus have to repent of? Nothing. He was sinless. And John knew that. So John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, and said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So, was any of Jesus' righteousness unfulfilled? No, he was already fully righteous. He had never sinned. It goes on and says, then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So so what's happening here? What's happening here is the great rescue's culmination has just begun. Jesus' ministry of substitution has just begun visibly in this moment. Meaning, Jesus knew he didn't need to repent, and he didn't need to repent, but we did. So in this moment, it's like everyone in the crowd that day when Jesus walked up to be baptized had this name tag on them that said, 
sinner. And Jesus was the only one in the crowd with a name tag labeled righteous. And Jesus would walk through the crowd in a sense that day and take off every single name tag that everybody was wearing and put them on himself. So that when he stepped in the Jordan River to repent of sin, Jesus was not repenting for his sin, but for ours. He carried that name tag of sinner the rest of the time all the way to the cross where God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us. See, Jesus' ministry of substitution can be summed up, the gospel can be summed up in four words around this. Jesus in my place. And see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the history of the world. Every other religion teaches you that you must do something to please God. Do this. Don't do this. Go here. Pray like this. Make sure you say these things. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done for you. Not something you can earn, but a gift you receive. See, Jesus' ministry of substitution can be I think it can be really hard for us to accept because we have to recognize that we cannot earn it. And the more competent you are in the life, the more moral you are in the life, the harder it is for you to accept that phrase. It goes against our pride to admit we are helpless. Repentance is something we hold on to in a Christian worldview without shame. It is us repenting, giving up our autonomy, changing our mind over who is really going to be God in our lives. In fact, all great leaders in the church throughout the centuries, including people like Martin Luther, talk about repentance being this beautiful part of our everyday life. It's not a once and done thing, but a way of life. I'd like to Take a moment and apply John's thoughts with us through a little quiz as we kind of wrap and close today. I think most of you listening uh, would honestly desire, I think most of us listening would desire to be more like Jesus. You know, I want us to take a moment to reassess in light of John's message because John the Baptist strongly confronts the religious, self-righteous, self-justification of the Pharisees. Now, we often make the Pharisees out to be villains, but, but as, as it was said in prayer earlier this morning, someone said in prayer earlier this morning, they said, you know, I, I really think the Pharisees were just really passionate, zealous people to want to do what God wanted them to do in life. I mean, they were generally God-fearing, and, and everybody would have seen them as the pillars of society in that day. And yet Jesus himself, along with John, condemned their pride, their lack of compassion, their pettiness, their hypocrisy in no uncertain terms. Their actions were often maybe right, but their hearts were so long and wrong and they eventually crucified Jesus. And we don't want to fall into that. I know that that's one of the fears I have in my life, that I don't want to fall into that same trap of becoming a Pharisee allowing my passion and zeal to take me there. Interestingly, many of the Pharisees actually became followers of Jesus over time. But So a few years back, 
Uh, Barna did a study that challenged me. It revealed in that study that uh, at least half, maybe more than half of American Christianity actually has beliefs and actions and statements and attitudes that are more like Pharisees than they are actually like Jesus. I don't think there's ever been a more important time in the divisiveness of our world and the name-calling of our world to re-examine our attitudes and our actions and how they reflect either the attitudes and actions of Jesus or, or maybe at times the Pharisees. So how do you know if you're more like Jesus or more like a Pharisee? Well, Kerry Newoff wrote an article entitled, uh, Things a Pharisee Would Say Today, and, and I want to take a little bit of a moment to go through some of those things with us. I, and I want you to think about who you think fits the bill of this statement, I want you to think about yourself and how much this statement might actually be reflective of your own heart. His first statement that today's Pharisees would say is, if he knew the Bible as well as I did, his life would be better. And there it is, judgment and self-righteousness in a neat, pithy package. I mean, reading our Bible is important. It's a, a critical spiritual habit. And it does bring blessing to us. But when we get smug, it's a problem. Arrogance is not a Jesus-like virtue. So here's another thing today's Pharisees might say. I follow the rules. Now, it's awesome if you do. And a godly morality does bring benefits to light to life. But that's not what makes you a Christian or gets you into heaven. You became a Christian because of the mercy Christ Christ extended to you when you broke the rules. Following the rules doesn't keep you in God's love, nor does it, because it didn't even get you into God's love in the first place. So, important question, why follow the rules then? You follow the rules as a grateful response to the love you've already experienced from God. It's just a grateful relational, I am so grateful you love me and I've repented and it's just evidence that you have repented and you are actually in a love relationship with God. Number three, you shouldn't hang around people like that. Anybody ever said that? Anybody ever heard somebody say that? It's important to choose friends wisely. We've talked about that plenty, especially for kids. But this phrase, especially for adults, is a pharisaical anti-Christian statement. If you aren't intentionally staying in relationship with people who are not Christians, who are morally different than you, then you are not living as Jesus lived, but as a Pharisee. Jesus gives us a parable saying, we are the salt of the earth. And if if the salt has lost its saltiness, then all is lost, he says. Our lives are useless. I mean, sure, You can look at it. Jesus paid a huge price for hanging out with people who were sinners. Pharisees couldn't fathom why on earth he would hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and notorious sinners. Why Jesus would allow himself to be associated with such anti-Christian people or groups attending their events or rallies or whatever you want to call it. Pharisees criticize and judge this kind of behavior like they did with Jesus. When was the last time you hung out with a prostitute or an atheist or a person who violates every moral and political sensibility in you and you listened and you loved them patiently and well? Convicting, isn't it? It's also kind of difficult and disturbing, isn't it? 
Allow me to just quote the next one of the Newhoff's article uh, just straight out because he says it so well. He says, another pharisaical comment today is, sure, I have a few issues, but that's between me and God. And he goes on and says, and if you keep it between you and God, people will never be able to relate to you. Perfect on the outside and flawed on the inside. That's the accusation Jesus levied against the Pharisees. He goes on and says, when people on the outside look at pretended to be perfect Christians, it does three things. It alienates them. It makes them think you're fake because even they know we're all broken. And it suggests to them that God can't help them. The antidote is transparency, vulnerability, honesty. When you let people know you don't have it all together, but you've met an amazing God, many people suddenly want to join in with you. Another thing that today's Pharisees might say, they just need to work harder. Man, have I been guilty of saying this one. I had to repent of it so many times. See, Jesus had tremendous compassion for the broken and poor people. And Jesus and Scripture resoundingly, strongly affirm a hard work ethic and the use of wisdom. I seek to live by that hard work ethic and seek to live by wisdom as, as well as I know most of you here do too. The problem is this statement is not just used as a diagnosis. It is used as a judgment. We compare our success to theirs and judge them and we miss compassion. Or even worse, we substitute an impersonal donation for true compassion. And then we just say our judgment again and rattle it off rather than actually what compassion does. Compassion motivates us to be relationally involved with people, to walk alongside people through their ups and downs, to help them learn new, healthier habits. And if it happens to be a work ethic they need to learn, it means we are relationally connected to helping them learn that new work habit. Compassion was a hallmark of the early Christians and a major reason why Christianity spread so quickly, especially even in the face of organized persecution. Isn't it true? There's more that you can read if you want later in that article, but there's, I think there's some Pharisee living in all of us. I know there is in me. I mean, this is such a challenge, isn't it? But can you imagine for just a moment if we as Christians were able to rid ourselves of the Pharisee in us and love like Jesus, and what change that would bring for us and for our world around us? So here's some questions for you to ask yourselves. What area of your life right now is not under the full authority of God? Is there any attitude or habit you have that you know is not pleasing to God? If so, the message of today from John the Baptist is repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. God is near to you. You see, in the Christian worldview, repentance is not a shameful thing. It is a response to knowing how much God loves us and accepts us even in our sin that makes us free to say, yes, I am totally messed up and I need your help and there's no shame and there's no hesitancy for us to say that personally or even publicly because it is part of our grateful response to God from already being so loved and perfectly forgiven to Him. 
kingdom of heaven is near. God is near you. For some of you, have you been baptized? See, for you, when you get baptized, baptism is this flag you, you just put in the ground. And it signifies for you that you have left the wilderness of sin and where Satan rules your life and you have entered the promised land of obedience where God rules and you're allowing him to change your life. Email me if you'd like to be baptized. We have a short class on baptism that also talks about some next steps in your faith journey. That It can either be done in person or we can do it on Zoom if you need that. So no matter whether you're attending here in person today or, or, or if you're attending in Columbus online or anywhere in the world, if you want to be baptized today to publicly declare your repentance, your turning to God, that you are a follower of Jesus, go ahead and contact me. Would you stand with me as we pray and close? Lord, this is just such a, a, a challenging message. But Lord, it's such, a, it's such an inviting message too. Because Lord, you do ask us to repent and so often I, I still get caught and I know we all get caught up in the pride of trying to protect our image and all that kind of stuff and the pride of trying to make sure we put a good veneer on so that, so that we look like good people. But Lord, you see us for who, you, who we are and you love us anyway. And you love us perfectly. So Lord, would you help me, would you help all of us learn to make repentance just a grateful part of our life? Because Lord, you've made it safe. You've already forgiven us. You've already loved us. It's not like we can tell you anything we've done wrong that's going to make you reject us. So Lord, just lead us to that kind of humility. And Lord, then I pray that by your Holy Spirit's power, you would change our hearts. And Lord, would you give us the ability to reflect the same kind of Jesus kind of love to the world around us. Lord, that our lives can mean more than we can ever imagine. Not because of how good we are, but because of how honest we are about how good you are. So Lord, as we turn now to worship you in song, would you receive our hearts? Would you come and pour your spirit out upon us and fill us fresh with your spirit and your power? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.